0: In 1775, the Second Virginia Convention gathered at a church in Richmond called St. John's Church. And they had gathered to discuss the, the threat that the British were to the, um, the colonies at that time. And there was one man, Patrick Henry, of course, that knew what needed to be done. There was a lot of, as a lot of times is in political circles... Like there's a little this and a little that, a little hemming and a little hauling. But Patrick Henry was clear-eyed, and he had fire in his eye when he said, and I'm going to listen to what he says here. They're all debating, what are we going to do about the British? How are we going to handle this? How are we going to do this? Here's what Patrick Henry said. He said, "It is vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, "Peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. I want you to hear the sentiment if not the exact words that he said i want you to hear the sentiment of what he was saying he was saying that having full liberty from the tyranny of the british rule was important enough to him that there would be nothing but full liberty from tyranny of british rule that would satisfy him he didn't want to compromise he didn't want them to have a little less control he said no no i want nothing to do with that he says in fact Give me liberty, or if I can't have liberty, I'm ready to die. That's his choice. It's that stark. He says, I can't take anything else. He'd sooner die than have compromise, have something else come out as the outcome. Now, I emphasize that for you in part because it resonates with this week because we're going to celebrate July 4th on Tuesday. But I also bring it up because I believe that kind of clear eyed, uncompromising focus on what matters, what really can make a difference, is something that's missing from too many people who call themselves Christians. Too many people who call themselves followers of Jesus are willing to take some sort of watered down, mealy-mouthed version of what we call Christianity instead of saying, no, 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 I want the real thing or you might as well just go on and forget about it. And what Jesus is teaching, I believe, in this passage in Mark chapter 9, is that we need to know that there is nothing but Jesus that will satisfy. And I'm not talking about a, 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 a cartoon version of Jesus, a, 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 some sort of picture that we've painted in our head. I'm talking about the, the real Jesus. And anything less than the real Jesus is going to leave us waiting and lonely and in need of something that we don't have, anything less than the real Jesus. So if I can take Patrick Henry's words of give me liberty or give me death and just alter them for the purposes of my message this morning, I would say the message to you is give me Jesus or just go ahead and take me now. Give me Jesus or go ahead and take me now. I want to point your attention to Mark chapter nine, verse 14. We'll take a few minutes to go through this, but before I do that, I'd like to pray and ask God to help me as I I preach this message to you. Lord, I pray that you will be with us. I think this is what you'd have me to say to these people at this moment. I believe this is the message you've been working in my mind, in my heart. I pray that you will drive me to the cross, drive me to the feet of the king, drive me to the only one who can save and I pray that in doing so through me that you may drive these people into the same place that they will take Jesus and nothing less and I ask this in Jesus name. Amen. In Mark chapter 4, or Mark chapter 9 rather verse 14. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been up in a glorious vision of Jesus. They got to, there's a few disciples that got to see him for who he really was. And he's coming down. And in verse 14, as many, he comes down from the mountain. he, He says, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. So he comes down from the mountain of transfiguration. If you can imagine, there's a, I imagine if anybody was with him, that was probably a spiritual high point of their, of their lives. Not to mention, I mean, definitely the, the, of this moment, but of their lives, probably something they probably talked about for decades to come about. They got to see Jesus in this amazing form. And as he comes down, he sees that there's a bunch of people gathered. And his disciples, there's only two or three of them went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him. The rest of them are down here and he's talking, they're talking with this great multitude. And it says the scribes were questioning them. So there's a, when it says questioning, it doesn't mean that they're just asking a few innocent questions. There's a vigorous debate that's going on. There's, a, there's, a, there's almost an argument that's happening. So you can imagine a big crowd of people and the, the middle of that crowd, you've got the religious leaders, the scribes is who they're called here, but the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders and the disciples, and they're just going at it. They're fighting and fussing. They're just, they're arguing, they're debating. And then in verse 15, straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, who did they see? They saw Jesus, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. Now, can you picture this? You got all these people gathered together, and they're all, I mean, just like they call it on the highway when there's an accident, you know, rubbernecking, everybody's got to slow down to watch what's happening over there. Everybody's got to pay attention to what's going on. That's what's happening, but on, instead of it being an accident, it's just a big argument in the middle of the the square, the city square, essentially. They're all fussing and fighting, and everybody's just wondering, what's going on? How are they talking about this? And then all of a sudden, they see Jesus, and what happens? That whole thing, almost, I can just imagine everybody dispersing and going straight to him, like, that's what we want. That's the one we're looking for. I believe the disciples are pretty excited to see Jesus because... You don't know this because I haven't told you about it, but if you continue on, you're going to find out that there was a little boy that they needed that was brought to them to heal to take out a demon out of him and they couldn't do it. So the disciples were saying, wow, glad Jesus is here. He can actually fix this problem. I believe that the scribes were actually grateful to see Jesus. These were the religious leaders because they're trying to argue and fuss with the disciples and no offense to any of those men, but I don't believe they had the intellectual capabilities that our Savior had. So I imagine those scribes were saying, I'm glad to have somebody with some real intellect. I already mentioned there's a little boy that needs healing. There's a little boy that has got a demon in him. There's demonic possession in him. And his father has brought him to the disciples to be healed. And he's not, they're not able to do it. So I imagine that dad is saying... Well good, the varsity squad showed up. I might get some help now. I might actually get some help at this point. And of course the people, they're all gathered there watching this argument, But now they know that the real miracle worker has showed up and they're excited about that. All of that in those two verses simply to say that as Jesus shows up, these people go running amazed towards him. I want you to first get this picture in your mind that what happens with Jesus, not only in this story, but I believe the way that he works in every circumstance. He shows up when you need him, where you need him. While the whole world is trying to do everything they can to fix your problem, while you're doing everything you can to fix your situation, it is not until Jesus shows up that you have any confidence that anything is going to be accomplished in that. And when he does, he's when you need him, where you need him most. I want to just pause for a moment and just simply make this point here. He's not always when you think you need him. Can you make, make that clear? Don't You understand know what I'm saying? Sometimes you think you need him right now. But for whatever reason, I'm not, I can't even explain the why, but sometimes he's going to wait a little bit. Because I could imagine if I was that dad, I would have loved it to be able to show up and bring my boy to Jesus. But that's just not how it worked. He's not always where you want him to be. He's not always there when you think you need him, but he is always right on time. He's always right there. And that's exactly what happens here. He shows up and it, it changes the situation. Jesus is always right on time. Now, when you sit, look at the situation here, you've got a bunch of people in verse 14. It says a great multitude are around his disciples and the scribes as they're discussing this. And even though there's a real problem, we're about to be introduced to this little boy that has this demonic possession. There's a big crowd gathered there. Do you think they care about that little boy? I mean, honestly, no, not really. I mean, if you ask them, oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's so, so sad, you know, that kind of thing. That's what we would do. But the real reason is they're gathered there because they want a good show. They just want to see the miracles. They just want to see. And this is what you'll see with Jesus is, or rather like the people that follow Jesus around, is there's a bunch of people there, but they're always there just to see the show. And then the scribes, what are they doing? Well, you see in verse 14, they're questioning, they're debating the disciples. That's all they're doing. They're just there because they want to have a good argument. They've got an opinion. They want to get that across. Of course, we know that there is a devil that is at work. In fact, you sort of start to see this in verse 16 where Jesus asks the, the scribes, what question ye with them? Why are you talking with the disciples like this? Verse 17, and then somebody in the multitude answers and says, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, the, the spirit taketh him, he teareth him and foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. This man and the crowd says, listen, my little boy here, he, he's got this demon in him. And that demon, every time it gets a hold of him, it takes him and it destroys his body. It hurts him. It causes damage to him. I can tell you that the devil is involved in this situation. Literal, The literal, real devil is involved in this circumstance. And you know what that devil wants to do? By the way, he's not, he's not stopped doing it in Mark chapter 9. You know what that devil wants to do? He wants nothing more than to kill and to steal and to destroy. That's all he wants to do. When you look out around, by the way, and you look at young people who are ravaged with disease, ravaged that they brought on themselves, ravaged with addiction, when they are absolutely confused about gender identity and all of these things, you know where that's coming from? That is not because somebody woke up one day and said, I got a better idea. No, you know where that comes from? That comes from the devil himself trying to distract and trying to destroy and trying to get himself involved in this situation. He may present himself, and he often does, as if he's got a good idea, as if he's got something he really wants. That's what he presents himself as. But in this situation, he shows his real colors. All the devil wants to do is steal and destroy. And we even have the disciples who I think were good hearted men. They're human beings just like the rest of us, and they've got their failings, they've got their foibles, but. They're good-hearted men, and as best as I can tell, Jesus had given them some power in previous chapters in Mark, and they were, for the first time, on their own, without the master, and thought, we can try out our new powers. After I was talking to the folks that were here on Wednesday night about this, as myself, as a, a man who I believe God has called, I'm a man who's, got, who's called to be a pastor and to, to preach, and sometimes I can get in my mind, well, I'm a pastor. I got this thing figured out. They just everybody just needs to step back and listen to Matthew. <laughs> the foolisher words have never been spoken. Because at the end of the day, I am just like anybody else. I need the power of God to work through me just like you need the power of God to work through you. And these disciples are doing the same thing. They were falling into that trap where they were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to do what God had given to them. But they were still now leaning on their own strength, their own abilities, and they weren't able to help. I bring up all of that to say we've got a very real problem. There's a young man here who's got a demon that is destroying his body, his mind, and his his soul, and what are all these other people doing? They've all got their own agendas. The disciples trying to help, trying to help themselves, use God's power. You've got the you got the crowd that just wants to see a show. You've got the scribes who just want to debate. You've got you've got the devil who all he wants to do is get in there and cause problems. You've got all of these people, but what does Jesus do in this circumstance? Look at verse nineteen. He answered him, talking to the dad here, and says, "O faithless generation." How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Jesus is heartbroken over this situation. He's not going to enter into the debate with the scribes. He doesn't actually go over there to the disciples and try to set them straight. He does that later on, but he doesn't do that right now. He he doesn't doesn't fuss at the crowd. What are y'all doing standing here gawking at this little boy? He doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? He is concerned about this situation. He is heartbroken. Yes, he's discriminated disturbed by believe by the devil's destruction he's disturbed by the disciples failure he is he is concerned but he is mostly concerned to the pain that this little boy is enduring right now and what does he do he says listen verse 19 bring him to me Of course, in verse 20, they bring the boy to Jesus and he sees him straightway. The spirit tear him and fell on the ground and wallowing and foaming. And he asks the dad in the next verse, he says, how long is it since he came, since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. So this, this man, this this person he's talking about, I don't know if it's a, it's a young child or if he's a young man. We don't know exactly the age, but the fact is he's had this problem for some amount of time. It's been with him for a while. And then the father turns to him in verse 22 and says, oftentimes cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But listen to what the, the dad says to Jesus. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's, he's begging Jesus for help. I just want to make sure you hear this, this message here. This part of the message is just simply to say that there are real people even this room And in our neighborhoods, in our community, that have real problems. And they just need somebody to help. What they don't need, if I could just go ahead and say this, they don't need your opinion about their sin. We got them, don't we? I got opinions about your, I got opinions about y'all's sin, by the way. You, You don't need my opinion about your sin. They don't need your opinions about their sin. They don't need us debating about their problems. They don't need us to sit back and just sort of watch and gawk as they are doing. You know what they need? They actually need somebody to help. That's what, this is what, this is what Jesus does. He's rather what the man's asking. He says, could you help us? And Jesus, what he does, I'm going to skip you down to verse 25. We'll come back to verse 23 in just a moment. In verse 25, when he saw the people come running together, he rebuked the foul spirit saying unto him, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter into him. Enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and ran him sore so much and came out of him. I want you to see what Jesus does. Jesus exercises his authority. He is God. Nothing can disagree with him. We can try, but we will hit up against a brick wall every time. And this devil, this devil, demonic spirit does exactly that. He exercises his authority. His authority, and he calls that demon to come out of that boy. He does in verse twenty-six, and at the end of it, he leaves this. This demon leaves this boy as if he was dead. Yeah, you know, some people might debate whether he's actually dead or wasn't dead. Whatever was he just like he was dead? My two cents. I think he was dead. That's just my two cents. You can disagree with me, but nonetheless, with whatever happened, insomuch they said he is dead. Then verse twenty-seven. Look what Jesus does. He takes him by the hand and lifted him up and he, the boy, arose. You see what Jesus does? He he doesn't sit there. He does this, by the way, if you go to other stories, there's that woman that gets caught in adultery and I think it's in John chapter 8, I believe. He doesn't sit there and say, well, now, let's see. Now, did you, you know, did you want this? Is this really what you wanted? Why did you? He he doesn't debate with her. What does he do? He says, your are forgiven. Don't do it anymore. Here's this little boy. Well, little son, why why is this devil working on you? Did you do something? Did you open up some portal to hell to get this devil in you? He's not doing any of that. What does he do? He gets the devil out and he says, here's my hand, take a hold of it. And he picks him up. Jesus actually intervenes in that situation. Too many people in this world turn your pain your suffering, your hurt, your need into a political or a theological debate. But what Jesus does is he feels your pain and he has compassion on your pain and he meets you where you are and he puts his hand out and he changes you. This is what Jesus does. This is how he does. He really does care. He's always on time and he really does care. But I want you to see that he has also he possesses the power to fix you. I told you to skip over verse 23, so let's go back there now. He's talking to the man, the, the father, and he tells the father, he says, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father cried, or the child cried out, and he said with tears, Lord, I believe. He says, I, I hear what you're saying, Jesus. I, I believe it. I do. I really do. But didn't see what the rest of what he says? Help thou mine unbelief. This man, he says, I really want to believe. I, I, I and, and I believe. I believe he's sincere on this because, after all, he did bring his son to Jesus. So it's not like you know, sort of Jesus stumbled across him. This man actually sought Jesus out and said, "I want you to help my son." So I believe this man believed Jesus could do something. Otherwise, why would he bring him? So I believe he meant that he wants to believe, but he admits the one thing that too many of us aren't willing to admit, and he says, "Lord, I believe." But man, I sure don't believe, sure enough, as much as I should. I believe, but could you help me? Because I'm just not believing enough. <clears throat> this man, I, I, I don't think he's lying. I think I'm just going to take him at his word. But what does Jesus do in verse 25? Does he say, well, excuse me, sir. I just don't think your faith is strong enough. Why don't you go and pray for a few more days and then they come back to me." No, what does he do? He immediately rebukes the spirit. That's what he does next. It's the next thing he does. Here's this man who's just told Jesus, I, I'm trying, but I just don't have enough. <sighs> Can you give me some more faith, Lord? I just don't have it. What does Jesus do? No more discussion, no more debate. He rebukes the spirit. Do you see that? I'm trying to get you to see this, that your savior, Jesus Christ, is strong enough despite your weakness. You are as weak as water, as they say. You've got nothing in you that you can do anything. If you're somebody that sits there and says, well, I just got to have a little more faith and maybe God will do something. I want you to know that you'll never get enough faith for God to do anything for you. That's not how this works. Your faith strength is not determining God's power. Because if it were, not a one of us in this room would be saved, not a one of us in this room would ever see God work. Not a one of us in this room would do anything. You know what the power is? The power is not in my faith. The power is in the God in whom I have faith. That's right. My faith can be, as I said, so weak it doesn't even stand up. But if it's faith at all, it's faith in the one who can. And this is what's the distinction here. Because it's Jesus who makes hell tremble. When he speaks that devil come out. Verse 26 the spirit cries. This spirit is screaming in pain. He's the one that makes hell tremble. He's the one that makes the dead. Who is in verse 26. It's like one that's dead. And they all said he's dead. He's the one that makes him arise. He's the one that gives hope to the hopeless. He's the one that gives the faithless and the weak. The strength they need. He's the one that makes sinners, people who deserve. I'm not just saying you're bound for hell, but you deserve hell, myself included. He makes sinners to be saints. That's what he does. He's got that kind of power. He's the one who opens up paths that you didn't even think were there. When you thought all hope was gone, when there was no way to find a way, he's the one that does this. This is the power that he has. It's not the power of my faith that matters. It's the power of the God in whom we put our trust. He does amazing things because he is spectacular, not because we are so faithful or so strong. Please get that mindset off of your, off of your heart. It is not about how you can do anything. It is completely about you saying, I'm leaning on you, Lord. That's all I got. If you're trying to do anything else, It's not going to work because you don't have the power. He does amazing, amazing things, not because we're amazing, but because he is reliable and he is so powerful. Now, all of that is the the—I always hate it when preachers do this and I rarely do it. But I'll do this. That was all by introduction. This is not this is my point. I want you to know that's who Jesus is. Y'all understand that with me. That's who he is. And somebody like that, you would think, would be the one you just go to all the time. I mean, if, he, if he's always going to be on time, right on time, if he's going to really care for you when nobody else cares, he's going to care. And when he can do things that you can't even imagine, not because of your faith, but because of his power, if that's who he is, and I can't make you believe that, but I believe that, and if you believe that, if that's who he is... Wouldn't it stand to reason that he would be your first go-to? The minute that you have a challenge, a problem, a situation, what are you going to do? It seems like he would be the one that we would go to. But just like the disciples, we have to wonder, and I have to confess to you, I have to wonder, well, why are all my issues fixed? Look at what he says in verse 28. What happens in verse 28? When he was coming to the house, so the situation is now passed. They're in a different setting. His disciples ask him privately, why could not we cast him out? The disciples are saying to Jesus, listen, says, we still got a problem. We had a problem. Can, can I just level with y'all? You know, sometimes you, I don't know how else to say this. I'm just going to say it the way it's in my mind. So y'all just got to hear me. I'll have a situation, a problem. Maybe it's a sin that I'm dealing with or something that's happened to me that I don't feel as right, I'm unjust. And I'll sit there and say, I trust in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And 30 seconds later, why? I still got a problem. Next 30 days later, why is this still bothering me? Why is this still worrying me? Y'all ever feel that way? My or just my by myself. Anybody else? I got at least two or three head nods. Okay, at least some of y'all with me on that. And, and Jesus' answer, he says, the reason that you're still dealing with this, the reason you're still upset about whatever this problem is, the reason you're still having no victory over that, he goes on to say here, this is their, their question is, why are we still dealing with this? Why couldn't we cast him out? He answers in verse 29, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. I want to emphasize for you those two things that he says, you, there must be in place prayer and fasting. He says, there needs to be prayer. What is prayer? It's ultimately asking God for help. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can define it, but at the end of the day, it's talking to God. It's basically showing him, I depend on you, God. I cannot do this apart from your intervention. So it's complete and total dependence on God. He says, listen, first of all, until you get to the place where you're relying solely on God to Interfere or involve himself in that situation until you're getting to that place there will not have any victory over this and I will just go ahead and tell y'all when it comes to things like sin when it comes to things like uh, uh, challenges against you people that are hurting you there will not be forgiveness that we've been preaching about on Sunday mornings that forgiveness is not going to come you're not going to get help because you tried harder it's not going to work in fact y'all know it y'all can testify to it And you say, well, I've been trying as hard as I can. I'm still having problems with this. You know why? Because first of all, we're not praying about it. We're not asking God for help on this thing because who's gonna help us? Matthew, your Sunday school teacher, your friends, are they the ones gonna fix it? No sir, no ma'am. The only one who can fix it is the God who shows up on time, who really cares for you and possesses the power to do it. So you better start talking to him. He says, you gotta, if you're gonna see some change here, you've got to pray, show dependence on him. That's the first thing he says, but then he goes on and does this thing. And I know, I I recognize that this is probably the wrong place to preach this message about fasting. (laughs) Partly because I don't like to fast. I'll tell you what, y'all ever tried fasting? I mean, like really tried it? Not just because you got a doctor's appointment the next day, but because you got to do it for prayer and fasting. hoo this fat boy does not like to fast. I don't even like to miss breakfast if I can help it. But here's what he's saying here. If we're going to actually have some victory over these problems, these, this sin, the devil's influence over ourselves or our, our lives in any way, if that's going to happen, we're going to have to have prayer, dependence on God, and we're going to have to fast. You know what fasting is supposed to do? You know what it's supposed to do? If you're doing it correctly? Yes, it make you hungry. There's that too. But you know what half that hunger is supposed to do? It's supposed to turn that physical hunger into a spiritual hunger. It is supposed to remind you, yes, my belly is empty and it is wanting something. This is, this is, the, this is the spiritual application. This is actually what you would do with fasting. Yes, my stomach wants something, and it's reminding me that my soul desires something. That's why we that's why the Bible calls for fasting, is to give us a physical reminder that we have a hole in us we have a need in us we have an emptiness in us that only God can fill and he says you're going to have to get to that point where you remind yourself that you can be satisfied with nothing less than God himself that nothing in this world can please your soul We turn so quickly to worldly remedies, don't we? Don't I, don't you? You Got a little nagging in your soul, turn on the TV. You got a little miss, something missing inside of you, go buy something. You you just feel like something's just not right, you go do something, look for some experience. Again, maybe I'm just talking to myself. Maybe that's not y'all, but I can tell you that's what Matthew does. We look for every hope in the world to help us. Our friends, our political leanings, our money, our reputation. But I want you to know that the vices of this world will not fix us. The alcohol, the drugs, the, the education, the government, the religion, and all those. By the way, I, I purposely lump all of those under the heading of ISIS because we lean on all of those things to fill our souls to fix our needs. And none of them will do that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us, if you have the devil's influence, that's what we've got here. The devil is trying to overtake this little boy. He is trying to tear his body up, trying to kill him. And we want that to come out of us. We want that sin to be gone. We want to overcome somebody else that's trying to ruin us or hurt us in some way. If we're trying to overcome those kinds of things, we need prayer and we need fasting. Total reliance, dependence on God and nothing else. And somehow, some way, if you need to stop eating for 24 hours, stop eating for 24 hours. If you need to, whatever it is you've got to do, get on your knees, whatever you've got to do to remind yourself You have something that's missing inside of you and that can only be satisfied by the God of the universe. Until we get to that place, we will never overcome these things. I want to say this last thing and I'll I'll, I'll get to the close. As believers, as Christians in 2023, you all are here. Listen to me, please. I'm going to assume that my experience is somewhat common to men. You get to these places where there's something that just feels off inside of you, your soul, and your spirit. And what we need to start doing a little bit more is sit with that a little bit. Instead of trying to run to everything in the world to try to soothe us, we need to sit with that a little bit. The horror of the fact that there's something missing inside of the horror of the, the fact that there's something that just doesn't feel right. Get I, I don't. Does anybody feel that ever? Y'all ever feel that way? Just feel like, oh my goodness, this feels awful. We got to sit with that a little bit and understand that there's only one person ever that will ever satisfy that. That hopelessness, that helplessness, that defeat that you feel in your soul. If you can't, you've got to somehow get to the place where you sit with that little bit and let it it scare you a little bit so that you will see that there is a Savior that loves you and will save you from that. Too many of us, when we get those feelings, what do we do? We immediately do something to try to numb our brains to it. But I want to encourage you to hear that, feel that, And not be satisfied with short term distractions, but instead go to the one, the only one who can help you. Give me Jesus or give me nothing. That's the message. Run to him in your time of need. Believe on him for your hope. Lean on him for the needs of your soul. You're going to have to lay hold on him for his presence and ask him, Lord, just like that man did. Will you help me? Will you help me? When you do that, I promise you, on the authority of God's word, he will give you what you need, he will give you what is best. I did not say that he will give you what you wanted. I did say he will give you what you need, he will give you what is best. And you will sit there and you will be in another another 30 days, another 60 days, you'll be in that place of, man, something's missing. And you've got to remember, the one who gives you what you need and the one who gives you what is best Is the only one you need to go to, and he's the one that we must run to. Give me Jesus or give me nothing. My invitation to you is very simple. If you have never, ever, ever accepted my Jesus as your Savior, you need to accept him today. I want to invite you. Just come and get me. You come up the front. We'll have a time of reflection. You come up here. I'll be down the front. You come and talk to me. I'll be glad to talk to you. I'll be glad to show you from the Bible what it means put your faith in him, to run to him. For those of you that have already accepted him as a savior, I want you to know that I want, that Jesus is offering you his presence. He's offering you his compassion. He is offering you his power today. And if you're troubled in any way about anything, you've got a burden about anything, would you please either come to the front of this church or stand where you're standing and just cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, I've got something missing inside of me. Something's work, not working. I'm inviting you to come to Jesus this morning.